Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Matza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Matthew Teller. Matthew is a writer. In fact, he's a travel guide writer, mostly for the rough guides. He's also a documentary maker and a contributor to BBC4 Radio. But more importantly, he is going to publish a book which will be available on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Obviously no connection whatsoever with Jerusalem, but- I'm afraid not, no. (laughs) But uh, this is gonna be a very interesting book. The Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, published by Profile Books. First of all, Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I've been, uh, I've been listening to you for pretty much the whole of the last, uh, what you've done over the last year has just been amazing with this podcast. It's really sort of, it's kept me going through this bit of lockdown. It's great. Glad to hear it. Uh, Matthew, first question. You've been around Jerusalem quite a while. So I wanted to ask you, what is your Jerusalem? How do you develop your connection with the city? Thanks, Roberto. Well, I mean, I've been thinking about how to um, how to respond to this question because it's a question that you ask all of your guests. So I've been thinking how to respond. The first I want to say, I think, is um, my Jerusalem is um, is in my head. I'm not making any claim to the real Jerusalem, to the real city. I'm I I'm an outsider there. I've been visiting a lot, um, but uh, it's not my city and it, it never will be my city. Um, and that's fine. Um, but yes, I've been visiting uh, most of my life. The first visit I made to Jerusalem um, was in 1980. Um, so I've been sort of every year since then, um, but kind of pretty much. Um, there's, been, uh, there's been visits. Um, I'm now 52. So when I was in 1980, I was about 11. So it's been sort of 40 plus something years of my life. Um, going to and from Jerusalem, and, and that's with 
um, also a recognition of the um, the privilege that I hold. Um, uh, maybe I'll go into this as well into my family background, but uh, the preserved male, um, well-spoken English uh, uh, writer, whatever, um, with all the freedoms um, that that confers and a British passport, which also confers a certain amount of freedom as well. Um, so all of this, um, and also, you know, the, the conversation that we that we'll be having over the next, whatever it is, um, the next uh, hour of the podcast, um, all of that comes with a recognition that there are many, many, many people, um, some of whom will be listening to this podcast, I'm sure, who are unable to go to Jerusalem and are unable to uh, travel as freely as I've been able to throughout my life as well. Um, for whatever reason, are, are they restricted by um, Israeli immigration or for other reasons of their status or whatever, they, the, their, their family background limits them. And I've been extremely fortunate um, that my family background has, in this situation and in this context, um, enabled me. Um, give a bit of context context to that. Um, I'm I'm a child of migrants. I suppose we all are in a sense. Um, my great grandparents, all eight of my great grandparents, um, arrived in Britain, which is where I'm speaking from, where I live, um, between about 1887 and 1913, um, and all eight of them were Jewish. They came from um, from part of that, uh, or it was then in Russia, what were the places that we now call Lithuania um, and uh, Belarus and Ukraine. And they all arrived in London, um, and it's because of them and their uh, their travel, their 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 uprooting of their own lives and their resettlements um, in pre First World War London um, that I am where I am and that I've had the ability to do what I've been able to do. Um, so my parents, as obviously they were Jewish, but identified as Anglo-Zionist, um, for a lot of my upbringing, um, you could say for the first 20 years of my life, um, I had a particular perspective on Jerusalem, because we're talking about Jerusalem, but also on Israel and on, on religion and on Jewishness and whatever. Um, my parents were very dedicated to assimilating. They, um, they knew and saw the, the difficulties that their parents had um, living and growing up in the deprived areas of, of East London. And they made a very particular decision to go against that um, and to move away from centres of Jewish population in London. So I was born and grew up in the suburbs. Um, you might call it the sort of stockbroker belt. It was, it was on the edge of London to the south. Um, and um, childhood, um, Zionism and, and a Zionist approach to Jerusalem and to Israel were, were very strong. They were very um, sort of key parts of my growing up. I remember my grandparents um, fundraising for Zionist causes um, with a little, a little blue and white tin that used to sit on the mantelpiece, and they were, you know, they would be collecting money and and supporting Zionist causes. Um, after that first trip in ninety, which was our first foreign holiday, I should say as well, there was there was this odd um, sort of push and pull. There was a desire among my parents to assimilate into English sort of society, middle class English society, but there was also 
the pull of Israel and Zionism as well for them. Um, so, um, where, you know, when we when when we started to take foreign holidays, it wasn't France or Spain or Italy or countries or the Greek islands or something countries that us English families might go on holiday. It was Israel, um, and we went first in, in 1980, and then in many many times after that, in the years following that, um, my father arranged for my bar mitzvah um, to happen twice: once at home and once at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Um, I, uh, even then, I'm, I would now consider myself atheist. I'm not practicing and I'm not observant at all. But even then, Judaism was, um, was very confusing. And um, I don't have a lot of recall of that event, um, other than it being very, very hot and there being crowds of people around me. Um, it, was, it, was a very, um, it was a very odd time. But there were many, many trips through the 80s, through my teens, um, to Jerusalem and also to other places in Israel as well. Um, but never, I was going to say, I would say never a contact with Palestinian culture. That's, that's the Palestinian culture to go to um, Palestinian places as tourists. Um, but it was very much the other. Um, that wasn't ours. You know, I, 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 I remember walking around West Jerusalem when I was small uh, with my parents or with my family, with my brothers or whatever. And understanding that, you know, this was, although we're English and everything to do with that as well, but this is also ours. This is us. And all these people, all like, I'm Jewish and we're Jewish. And there's a similarity there. Um, and it was understood even then um, that uh, Palestinian culture and Palestinian people in as much as we ever came into contact with them, which was very rarely, were not us. Um, so this, that's a very long thing to say that the first sort of 20 years of my life, um, I was receiving a particular point of view, a particular person. Then I have it in my head and I characterize it as being the next 20 years um, were something quite different. So I was, um, I was for a while living in Cairo, I made the choice uh, to live there to learn um, how to teach English as a foreign language. And I was a journalist for a while on a newspaper in Cairo. Um, and that was a real eye-opener. That was, um, aside from the, the craziness of Cairo and the, and the excitement and the intensity of the place, um, listening to ways of telling stories that I thought I knew already that were coming at me from completely different perspectives. Um, and that continued. I was very lucky um, to be able to uh, travel in uh, Syria and in, in Jordan and other places. I, I visited Beirut. I was, I was traveling through Lebanon as well. Um, and I remember um, probably in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, uh, spending some time in uh, Sabra and Shatila, um, these areas of Beirut where Palestinian refugees, Palestinian people and families have been living in the most appalling poverty for decades and decades um, and being shown around there and being, um, you know, being introduced to people and listening to what they have to say and talking to them. And, and again, hearing these stories, these ideas about places that I thought I understood and thought being reinvented for me. There was a period, you mentioned travel guide writing um, early on, there was a period when I lived in Amman as well. I was lucky to live there to be able to write 
uh, I wrote a book, I wrote a, a tourist guide to Jordan. Um, and again, listening to, listening to people talk about, this was all the time, all these, all these trips, all these visits and travel and places were interspersed with trips to and from Jerusalem, again, going back to Jerusalem and coming out, going into Jerusalem. I was in Amman, I would cross the bridge and come back again because I had this incredible privilege and freedom with the passport that I hold to be able to do this. So I would be listening to people in Amman talking about um, not, not wanting, obviously not wanting to go. Some, some people don't want to go. Some people do want to go, but are unable to go. Um, and then, you know, having this in my head as this, as this contextual backdrop to my privilege and my freedom to, to go and to see the city with eyes that constantly, I feel like the brain behind the eyes was constantly changing. I was constantly... Um, um, uh, building on my picture and my understanding of the city um, over the first 20 years of my life and then the second 20 years of my life to, to, to sort of to come to a point where Jerusalem was a, was a fulcrum. Jerusalem became, in my head, um, the, 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 the balance point upon which everything in my life, my attitudes towards this, and also to my parents and my forebears and whatever, and to other people who have since become very important to me as well in my life, that this city was a, was a point of balance and, and understanding or coming closer to understanding Jerusalem as best you can um, was something like a key to understanding myself and understanding the journeys that I'd made as well, uh, physical journeys and also, um, I don't know, metaphysical, spiritual journeys, whatever. Um, so it's been, you know, 20 years of that and 20 years of that. And now I'm, like I say, I'm 52. So the last 10 years have been where this all fits together and how I can put it together. Um, and the result, <laughs> I hope that it does justice to the place. The result is this book, which is coming out um, in, uh, in a short while. Spoiler alert, I actually read the book. So I, I can say that it's a great book to read. Thank you. Um, I just want to ask you something about the discover of the other. You, you talked about... Uh, you know your personal journey and the fact that you start visiting jerusalem at a very early age you know makes me wonder how did you discover the other side of jerusalem and uh, what happened you know moving from west to east jerusalem uh, it looks like uh, crossing into a different world essentially so i was wondering uh, you know whether you have memories uh, your childhood and you know your your trips and you know what did you see and how did you feel about the fact that actually Jerusalem, as you mentioned, was not just um, a Jewish city or just a city for the Jews? Um, I have, I mean, I have some memories, yes. The, the way that it happened, I suppose, though I could go into that to start with, um, was, uh, if you like, by choice. Um, so there was that, that fulcrum point, um, roughly in my early 20s somewhere, um, where I was... Where was I? I was staying in in a in a. I was in. I was visiting my actually visiting my brother in West Jerusalem. He married an Israeli woman. Um, his first marriage, and I was um and I did a bit of uh, kibbutz volunteering, and uh, I was staying on a moshav for a while, um, and traveling around the country. Um, and then Cairo happened. I chose to go to Cairo, and Cairo blew me apart. And it was. I don't know quite how to describe it. Betrayal is perhaps a bit, a bit too strong a word, but there was something of that in there. There was an understanding that um, well, I, there's also, obviously there's a bit of rebellion in there, a bit of, you know, late teenager rebellion. I've always been a late rebellion. Um, 
there was a bit of pushing against the, the stories that I've been given, but there was also a sense that, that these stories that I'd had um, were not right. There was something that was not being said. There was something that was unspoken and I wanted to try and go and find it. Um, I remember that the first time I went when I was young, I was 11, um, my brother, my elder brother, um, took me into the Sukh for the first time. Um, and that also, Kara <laughs> was one, going into the Jerusalem Sukh for the first time was another one as well. Um, I remember um, the, the, the smells, the sights, the sounds, the feeling. I remember the atmosphere. Um, I remember the, the sense of newness. I was understanding almost for the first time, maybe as a young boy, that that there were other people in the world living other lives and doing things in different ways from the ways that I knew and the way that that people I knew around me were doing things um, experience. Um, and I held on to that. And so when I sort of had the freedom to choose, I suppose, um, I went back to Jerusalem after Cairo and I went to stay and work in a Palestinian run um, backpackers youth hostel in the old city. Um, and there was a period of, I don't know, three or four months or so where I hardly left the old city. I would be working during the day, in a sense, working. I'm putting scare quotes around working um, for the hostel, um, I don't know, handing out um, uh, business cards and talking to travelers as they arrive in Damascus Gate or whatever and seeing, you know, do they, would you want to stay here or do you want to stay there, whatever. Um, and then, um, walking around the old city as well and listening to people and seeing people and talking to people and and um uh, putting meat on the bones of the, the idea that then i was previously aware of um yeah so it's it was it was that was an eye-opening experience for sure i remember i i was um there was there was all sorts of stuff going on actually with that hostel um and I, looking back, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back, I probably um, unwittingly trod on um, the, the, the edges of uh, mafia-style turf wars in the old city. The family who ran the hostel um, were, um, I think, I, who knows what they were actually involved in, but there was some sort of dispute with other families nearby. And they, we all got very tribal at one point. I was actually, yeah, you see, there you go. I was, I was... Um, I haven't thought about this in a while. I was punched in the face in um, in the sook in on the in Khana Zait Street, right in the middle of the sook, um, by um, the owner of another youth hostel down the way, <laughs> who we were, I guess, in competition with. And I don't know whether whether the hostel that I was at was more successful than his, or he didn't like me walking around handing out business card. I don't remember the ins and outs of it, but I do remember being knocked down. Um, by a punch to the face um, and being helped by people. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a while. Thank you, Roberto, for bringing up these memories. Good grief. Um, does that answer your question? Sorry, remind me what the rest of the question was. I've got it, it by, by, by violence now. It does indeed. I was just not expecting that you, you could have been punched for, um, you know, giving away business cards. But actually it made me think that uh, perhaps I should try to find people and run an episode on... Uh, youth hostels in Jerusalem, which are very popular and, you know, yeah, some of them very famous, uh, particularly yeah. the one that I forgot the name, but is right by Jaffa Gate and you can go on top and you have this amazing view of a city. Yeah, the Petra. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I want to move and ask about uh, this book because obviously, uh, you know, it's coming out in March. The title is very catchy and uh, certainly very interesting, The Nine Quarters of Jerusalem. But I want to take it like from really, you know, the first step. Why a new book on Jerusalem? Now, I don't want to make the argument that uh, Simon's Montefiore book, uh, uh, Jerusalem, a biography, is some sort of like the definitive book on Jerusalem, but it covered nearly every aspect of the history of the city. And, you know, for many uh, out there, oh, you know, if you want to know something about Jerusalem, that's the book. Now, obviously, this is problematic because uh, there are probably more than 10,000 book, uh, books written about Jerusalem. At least, uh, yeah, yeah. At least, exactly. So that would be very reductive just to focus on that one alone. I, I was just wondering, you know, why a new book on Jerusalem and why now? Also a really good question. Um, part of the answer to that question, I would say, I mean, you've, you've had it in the last however long I've talked. Why did I want to write this book? I wanted to write this book because um, it's something that comes from deep inside me and it's been a part of my life, um, all of my life. Um, and I, um, also being a white male, well-spoken English person, feel like I have something to contribute to the conversation on Jerusalem. Um, but I'm well aware of the, of the you know, 150 plus 200 years of uh, well-spoken white male English writers behind me who have done the same thing. What I wanted to try and do differently was, um, and this is not to decry, obviously Simon Seabag Montefiore's book, which is wonderful in its own way. Um, I didn't want to follow a chronologi chronological history. What was important to me um, and some of that step stems back from actually being punched in the face and that experience that I had um, working in the old city as a as a as a twenty something. But in back back home, uh, um, part of what I wanted to do was to um, use the platform that I have that I've developed now to amplify the voices of people who have been shouting. They have voices. They've been talking and trying to get their voices heard in in my culture, in English-speaking culture in the West, um, and we've been ignoring them, um, the people who live inside the old city. What, what I was seeing a lot back then and also now still is that um, of different kinds um, come to Jerusalem for often for very particular reasons. They come to see a particular place or visit a particular site, whether it's the church or the mosque or the wall or whatever. And there's been it's been a constant theme as you all know and i'm sure many people listening to the podcast will know that um the reality of jerusalem has often been disappointing to people it hasn't lived up to um the jerusalem that they have in their heads i do um uh, 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 i don't know how to put it a rejection of the people who live in this place in this special place that that people have traveled around the world to come and visit there's a there's a dismissal which I didn't like to see or feel or experience. There's a there's a sense that the people who live and work within this living city, um, we can maybe talk about the history of, of the British did to the, to, to, to the old city of Jerusalem 100 years ago and how they tried to um, uh, divorce it from from the city all around and try to, to create this sort of sliced and diced uh, museum like old city. Um, there are very particular things which they did and, and also subsequent rulers did as well. But um, maybe we can come to that. Um, but uh, 
what I was seeing was um, people saw the people who lived, visitors saw the people who lived there, impediments to their goals. Their goal is to have a spiritual experience. Their goal is to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Their goal is to um, kiss the Western Wall, whatever it may be. And the people who are there get in the way. And I saw that. I saw, I, I'm sure everybody who's visited has seen that. Um, and I didn't like it and I didn't think it was right. Um, so that was a motive force for me to try and look to them from an outsider's perspective, which is the only perspective that I have, um, with an understanding that the people who live there and work there are important, not just important, they are more important than the stones that are around them. So what this book tries to do is to promote the voices of the people who live there. And, and you know, since, since I've written it and since I've been talking to the people, um, I'm not an academic, I'm not a scholar, I don't work in university, no, but um, uh, um, a friend in particular, one particular friend, Maya Guarnieri uh, Jaradat, said to me, oh, you should, uh, you should try and uh, mention the subaltern studies and try and talk about subaltern studies because what you're doing fits in very well with that. And I'm afraid that term was new to me. Since I've, I've now, um, I'm now looking again at Noor Masalha's book, which I've now actually got in front of me right here. Um, the, uh, the Palestine Nakba Decolonizing History, Narrating the Subaltern and Reclaiming Memory. He wrote that 10 years ago. Um, but this idea that um, subalterns, people who are non-elite, people, um, people who live, uh, live lives which are otherwise out of the focus of uh, the great events of history and, and, and politics and society, um, have something to say. And they do have something to say. And I hope that um, the book that I've written, unconsciously <laughs> dovetailing into subaltern studies, I hope the book that I've written um, proves that they have some. That's why I, I wanted to write it. And then um, a particular facet of Jerusalem which had been bothering me um, since I was a kid, um, then came to the fore as well. And that's where these quarters come in. So um, there's, a, there's, a very, um, there's a very clear sort of um, uh, acceptance outside, from outsiders of all kinds, uh, media and, 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 and political observers and, and, and everybody looking in from the outside. And it's all over. The, the old city of Jerusalem has four quarters. It has every map you see has, you know, in the top left, it has the Christian quarter. In the top right, it has the Muslim quarter. And in the bottom left, it has the Armenian quarter. And in the bottom center, it has the Jewish quarter. And then there's the um, Al-Aqsa or the Temple Mount or the Haram al-Sharif, which is uh, walled off on one side as well. Um, and it's accepted everywhere. Um, it's, never, it's never questioned. Some of the, some places you'll see, on, on, particularly on the media, they will color code these quarters, you know, blue and yellow and red and green or something, with sharp line um, to try and emphasize the fact that these are, what are they? I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. Are they ghettos? Are they, are they sort of mini cities in themselves? Are they, what, what's, what's going on with these quarters? Because obviously, as you know, and I'm sure many people listening to the podcast will know, when you walk in the old city, there are no lines and there are no borders. The Jewish quarter is a somewhat separate uh, case, which we can come to and talk about later, but elsewhere, in particular elsewhere, um, you walk between the, the so-called quarters without noticing uh, any difference. And when I was trying to, to understand what the quarters are, where did they come from? I kept coming up against um, silence sounds too conspiratorial. It wasn't silence, 
but I, I couldn't find anywhere in the media, in, um, in academia, in literature, uh, I couldn't find anyone anywhere who had identified where the quarters of them um, and broadly why, although why has been, has been, um, has been tackled. People like Vincent Lemire um, and Salim Tamari have also written about, about the existence of the quarters and roughly when they arose and then what the reasons were behind them. But even they, I couldn't find a particular reference to when and why. Um, and I wanted to do a bit of digging, so I did. And I, I looked through, started looking through maps, the story of uh, 1998 with Napoleon. Prior to that, maps of Jerusalem um, were often, were almost entirely non-figurative. Uh, Jerusalem was an ideal. Um, and often, you know, if, if pilgrims, and visitors ever drew maps, they tended to draw them after their visit, they were, when they returned home again, um, as a, 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 a depiction, an idealization of this, um, of this um, um, heaven on earth. So maps only began to become figurative maps in the 19th century, following um, Napoleon's uh, invasion of Egypt in 1798, and then Palestine as well, he brought with him as well as armies, he brought this large contingent of scientists and artists and scholars. Um, and um, uh, there was sort of this e explosion of interest in Europe in particular, in, um, in what the, how you would describe it, Eastern culture, Turkish culture, what we now call the Middle East. Um, there was an explorer um, who came with Napoleon as well, a, um, a Spaniard called Domingo Badia, who disguised himself as a Muslim and went under the name of Ali Bey. And, um, got onto the Haram al-Sharif um, in, I believe, 1807. Um, and he published um, the first sort of measured drawings of the, of the compound there. Um, and then the first non-frugative map of Jerusalem sort of in the field uh, followed shortly after in 1818, um, drawn by uh, Franz Sieber. Um, and it shows, you can find this online on Wikipedia or whatever, and it shows a, a unified city. So there's, a, there's a, an area which is marked Judenstadt or, or the Jewish quarter, but otherwise there are no um, divisions marked within the city. There's not even really a, a division between the, the city and the Haram Sharif either. Nowadays, obviously we have thick, hard lines drawing lines around the Haram. Um, his map has a sort of uh, what Ahtas Suef has called recently, actually a porous border. And maps followed. I, I, I tried to sort of track it through. I was looking to see when these quarters first came up. There was a map following that um, in the 1830s, an English map um, drawn by uh, Frederick Catherwood, who was another explorer. Again, there, there was, uh, the, um, he draws in more detail. He gets some of the cartography wrong, but it starts, Jerusalem starts to look like um, the city that we recognize today. But still, there's, there's the Jews' quarter. And these other other areas are not marked. The the, the um, you know the uh, the the Armenian um, convent is is marked as a convent, not as a quarter. Um, and it's very shortly after that, that was about 1835, and then 1837. There was a Hermann Engel, who essentially took Catherwood's map and translated it into German. Um, so the ground plan is more or less the same, but then Engel's map introduces for the first time a Turkish quarter um, up in the northeast near what is now what's Herod's Gate. 
um, and a Latin quarter around the Latin convent and an Armenian quarter um, and also a Greek quarter. Um, these are undefined, these, as far as I can tell. Um, and I'm also very aware that there are many, many scholars listening to this podcast, and I would be very happy to be proven wrong if anybody um, would like to write in or email me or email Roberto um, to say that I'm working on substandard information. Um, first of all, I would not be surprised, but I would be delighted to be, to be uh, taught better. But as far as I know, that mention of quarters is the first time that these names appear on a map, which is 1830. Um, and, um, I, I, you know, going through, I'm, I'm happy also, we can talk about what quarter means as well. There was, I was distracted by the meaning of quarter, particularly in English, but perhaps we can come back to that. I'll continue the story of, of the mapping um, for now. Um, it was around that time when Catherwood and Engel were working in the 1830s that there was political turmoil um, in Jerusalem and in all of Palestine um, with um, the, the, uh, the in Egypt, who was a sort of um, was a sort of rebel leader who rebelled against the Ottoman Empire, um, and um, sort of uh, uh, declared uh, an intent to proclaim independence, and and marched through um, Syria, which included um, Palestine and Lebanon as the modern states as is, uh, and went on to approach Constantinople, um, and then in 1839. Um, the Ottoman Sultan died and was replaced by his son. Who was um, there was a there was uh, also uh, there was a popular uprising in Palestine in 1834 against Muhammad Ali. There was political turmoil. It was very very rocky, and it seemed to, to the sort of the great European powers looking in from the outside that the Ottoman Empire was about to collapse. So they the, there was this period of where they they scrambled to sort of reimpose order um, and to seize influence and to keep um, land routes open, especially in Britain's case to India uh, further east. Um, and it, effectively, there was an uh, uh, initiative, but effectively what Britain did was they, uh, Britain bombed Palestine and bombed Lebanon um, into submission. Um, Hamad Ali withdrew and Britain handed these areas back to Constantinople. I'm sure there are historians who are gasping in horror at my uh, synopsis of what's going on. Um, I hope that's roughly accurate about what was going on. But when it was all over and Muhammad Ali had gone and in a sense, uh, Britain, Britain's will for order, um, forces, British forces remain, along with the forces um, that were uh, placed in, in, in coastal Palestine and also coastal Lebanon. There was a group of Royal Engineers who had been sent at this point to survey the terrain. There were no uh, maps of the wider area um, and the British um, wanted maps um, in order to understand where they where they were bombing, <laughs> I suppose, and where they were trying to seize influence. Initiative. There were these two men, um, Lieutenants uh, Aldrich and Simons, who were sent to Jerusalem in March 1841. They stayed for about a month. They surveyed the city and they drew a map. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? 
Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mapping is crucial. And, uh, and I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned the question of quarters. Now, oh, yes. I was just going to get I, to that with audits and Simons, but that's okay. Carry on for now. I, I would agree with you that obviously the division in fourth quarter is very much artificial. Is the byproduct of British rule, particularly uh, in the period of a mandate, even though it's kind of like uh, coming from earlier surveys of a city and understanding of a city. Um, and, you know, I would say that... Uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense uh, that there were more than just four quarters. And, I'm, and I was thinking about the work of Michel Campus, who recently published a very important work on GIS study and serving of a city, looking at streets and ownership of buildings or, you know, people renting buildings, showing that while streets <clears throat> might have been homogeneous, uh, but certainly they didn't follow the, the, the pattern of the fourth quarter. So there were Muslims in the Christian quarter uh, as well as in, you know, in the Jewish one and so forth. Showing that obviously that idea of Jerusalem dividing fourth quarter is very much artificial. Obviously nine quarters suggest that there are more than just four communities in Jerusalem and a lot, a lot more people, which you already mentioned that. I just want to briefly talk about the question of quarters. Uh, if you can explain why quarter is such a uh, perhaps problematic term uh, and what it means to you, a quarter. And I just want to tell the listeners that um, Matthew published a very interesting thread on Twitter about the question of quarters. But then I want to move and talk about uh, uh, some specific communities that are definitely neglected in the old city of Jerusalem. But first of all, again, what is a quarter? It's again, it's a really good question. Um, I hope we can come back because I hadn't quite got to the conclusion of where the historic story about where the quarters came from, but we can get to that. Um, quarter, um, as I said, I was thinking about it. This is particularly in English. Um, I, I'm understand that 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 uh, other languages have different approaches there are different nuances i'm not really qualified to speak about speak about english 
um, what I was thinking um, as I was writing this book and writing particularly this chapter was uh, the words that we have to designate parts of a city. Um, so we have, uh, you know, there are sort of informal words, there are district or a neighborhood or, or an area or a zone. Um, these are all fairly neutral. There are also um, legal terms, legal usages, um, or a ward or a borough. Um, and these are all neutral. They don't, they, they describe areas, but they don't carry baggage with quarter. Quarter does carry baggage. Um, and I tried to research as best I could where that baggage comes from. Um, it roots, as far as I can tell, into, into Latin. Um, so there's, um, and there's obviously, I should say this point as well, quarter, there's, a, there's a, 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 a meaning of quarter, which is exactly one fourth. And there's a meaning of quarter, which is an area of a, of a city or a, or a settlement zone. Um, and the one grew out of the other. So um, Roman settlements, Roman military camps in particular, would be divided into four um, by the creation of a, of a straight road north-south which they called the Cardo, and a straight road east-west, which they called the Decumanus. And so the, 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 the camp into these four areas, and each quarter would be given to a particular rank or to a, to a unit or whatever. And those military echoes are what still rings today in the background of the word. So English, um, you know, the, the military English, uh, 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 mil English military terms still have quarters. Um, so they will talk about the married quarters will be the area of a, of a military um, a military camp where there are houses for families. Quarters is another one. Quartermaster is, um, is a military, um, uh, a sort of a, a person who controls military supplies. Giving no quarter. We give no quarter to an enemy. It means we deny them shelter. And these, this military, um, these military, military background to the word uh, is still there. It slid, the word sort of slid into civilian life um, three or four hundred years ago. So there were servants' quarters in grand English country houses. But that, that idea of a quarter as a, as a city district, it survives, but it survives in this sort of grey area. There's a, there's a conceptual link to a fourth, one-fourth, um, somewhere in the background of the word. And there's also these military uh, overtones in the background of the word as well. Um, and I was looking particularly at Jerusalem in the Jerusalem context. Outsiders seem to have this a sort, of, a sort of fixation that the city has, that the, the, that the uh, quarters means four in the case of Jerusalem, but quarters doesn't necessarily mean four in the case of other cities. I was thinking about New Orleans has a French quarter, but it has only one. Paris has a Latin quarter and it has a couple of other quarters as well, um, but not four. Copenhagen has one, has also a Latin quarter. Uh, European cities in particular had a, had a Jewish quarter, but again, often only one. Birmingham in England, which I live uh, quite close to, has and also a jewellery quarter in Birmingham as well, which is named for the, for the jewellery artisans. And I started to look sort of around the world. There are, there are different cities. There's a, there's a Japanese quarter in Dusseldorf and an Indian quarter in Durban. And there was at once a German quarter in Moscow. This sort of, I, I start to see how the, 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 the word, um, it sort of, it carries these nuances of power backed by these military echoes, which come to us from Latin, from the Romans. There are class hierarchies. There are, there are 
hierarchies and nationalistic hierarchies in the usage of the word quarter. Um, it's quite striking that when you look at um, modern um, governmental or municipal um, gentrification schemes, so schemes to, uh, to upgrade areas of a city or to reinvent uh, a part of a town as being more attractive to home buyers or whatever it may be, that they will use quarter. They will use the canal quarter or the, I don't know, the park quarter or something. Quarter has an, um, and as I say, this is all in English. I'm aware that, um, you know, French quartier doesn't carry the same baggage. I know that Spanish and Portuguese don't carry the same baggage with uh, with cuarto. Uh, Roberto, you can say better than me what Italian does. Um, but I was looking he at- He doesn't, this. it's just Go like, uh, it would be the, uh, you know, the neighborhood kind of uh, definition. So there is no mm. baggage attached to it. Right. I mean, that's, that's what I guess. I guess that English with its, with its, 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 uh, its class-ridden focus that we've inherited over the last goodness knows how many centuries, um, sort of in this instance stands alone. There's, a, there's, a, there's baggage attached to this word, which is often unconscious and is often little, little noticed, little understood even. But when it comes to Jerusalem, it, it gets to be vital because then what we see is that Jerusalem is, um, is being divided by outsiders into ethnic enclaves and, we, and with, by use of the word quarter. If, and it's a, if doesn't matter, but if the four quarters of Jerusalem had instead been four zones of Jerusalem or, I don't know, four neighborhoods of Jerusalem in English, um, I think that would have said something different. And I think, that the, in a sense, the, the 19th and 20th century history of Jerusalem would also have been different as well. But they weren't. It was quarters. And there was a very particular reason why quarters was created and why quarters survived. It was colonial rule and, and, uh, and, and like I say, ethno-religious division. What was particularly striking to me was how Arabic is, is so utterly, utterly different. That the Arabic words, which are used to describe the neighborhoods of Jerusalem also carry none of that baggage. Hara in particular, the, the, the word for neighborhood, um, or sometimes it's, it's, a, there's a, it's, a, it's a, a loose term, it's a gray neighborhood or the section of a street when the street can, can give the name to the neighborhood or the neighborhood can give the name to the street. Sometimes they're um, defined by the origin of the population um, as in the, 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 the street of the Jews say, sometimes they're defined by a trade, there's the street of the tanners, um, which still exists in, you know, inside Newgate, the old city. Um, sometimes they're drawn from other landmarks, there's, there's um, I don't know, the, the, uh, which is one of the, the gates into Al-Aqsa on the north side, and that gives its name to that whole area of the old city in the northeast corner near, inside um, the Flowers Gate, Herod's Gate. But this conception of neighborhoods was entirely different. There was um, a historian, Mujer ad-Din, in, in the 15th century, he identified 18 neighborhoods, quarters, if you like, of Jerusalem. And previously, there were other historians that have gone back and, and have looked at and identified 39 quarters in Jerusalem during the 13th or 14th century. And then you come down to what is the, what is the meaning of a quarter? What does a quarter actually mean? Does the Christian quarter mean only Christians can live there? No, obviously, as you said, Jews lived here and there and Muslims lived all over the city as well. But this usage informs what I was particularly focused in. I'm not a historian and I'm not a scholar. Like I say, if anything, I've come from travel writing. I'm looking at how outsiders 
see Jerusalem, and, and what's, what happens is that they, there's, a, there's a sense of ex, ex, exclusivity. So people see the color-coded four quarters and they hear Christian quarter and Muslim quarter, and people outside who don't understand the, the, the actual nature of, of the social mix of Jerusalem will identify, I think, with one or the other or, or both or neither. If they're not Muslim, maybe they will think the Muslim quarter is sort of dangerous or not for me, interest me, so I'm not going to go there and, and see what happened. Um, if, I'm, you know, if I'm Jewish, um, maybe I shouldn't go to the Christian quarter. There's nothing there for me. I will just stay in the Jewish quarter. So this, um, it's obvious you can see where I'm going with this. These quarters affect how Jerusalem is consumed by the media and by the outside world looking in. And what I wanted to do, um, I was going to say to try and cut a long story short. I haven't cut a long story short at all. It's a very long story. What I wanted to do was to show the world, if you like, in my egotistical way, that the four quarters of Jerusalem is a colonial invention. Well, I was going to come back to where they came from. And there's a particular map, um, the map of, of 1849, which was drawn off Aldrich and Simons's uh, survey of 1841, which was published um, by the, uh, this chaplain called George Williams, English chaplain, um, who was only in Jerusalem for, uh, you know, just over a year or so. Um, and that which included um, these large areas, Christian quarter, Muslim quarter, he called it Mohammedan quarter, uh, Jewish quarter and Armenian quarter for the first time. And since then, since George Williams in 1849, every subsequent map has included the four quarters. And what I wanted to do to, was to say, this is wrong. This is not right. This is this is um, this is a, 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 a betrayal of the reality of the social mix of that time that we put George Williams, this 19th century old Etonian British missionary, um, to bed. Well, that's re that reminds me of the question of uh, Mercator projections, the Mercator map that essentially painted the world in a way that doesn't really. Projects the, the the real dimension of uh, continents and countries, uh, and so that allowed for, uh, for for example, um, sort of colonialists to move into Africa or other parts of the world, making arguments based on that false projections on a map. And and the same Absolutely. is true when you look at, at Jerusalem. Uh, I suppose that that artificial division and a superficial one too allowed then for people, particularly. Uh, settlers, uh, Western settlers uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th mm -hmm. century to make their own claims, but leaving a long lasting legacy of um, misunderstanding, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and yes, it does. It lingers. It lingers today. The misunderstanding continues. Um, and you know, there's a reason why it survived. Obviously, it survived because it suits a, a colonial reading of Jerusalem and Jerusalem's history. Um, whether that reading comes from the British or from even from the Jordanians or certainly from the Israelis. And there's a reason why it hasn't gone away yet. Um, and what I wanted to do was to try and, and out the door to say to, to, to my culture, to English speaking culture in the West, um, that there's another way to view this city, um, that, um, that the people of the old city matter. They have been shouting, like I say, and they haven't been being listened to and they should be. Um, and to try and tell some new stories. And as we reach the end of the interview, I really want to bring you 
to a point to talk about uh, at least a couple of these communities that have been uh, certainly shouting, but in general without uh, great results as people don't really know about them. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the Black Palestinians, for instance, or the other very important community that uh, developed in the old city, which is composed of essentially what we may call uh, gypsy, uh, but they are part of the fabric of uh, the old city of Jerusalem. They're just not part of the narratives of the history of Jerusalem. That's absolutely true. I feel very um, underqualified about this, but um, uh, because I'm not, uh, I'm not Dom, which is the name um, of how the people describe themselves. Um, and I'm also not black, um, but you know, I, I, what I wanted to try and do with my book was to say that if your history of Jerusalem doesn't include black history, then it's not a full history. And if it doesn't include the history of the Dom or the or voices of the Dom as well, it's not a full history. These people you know, are, um, are uh, not just in, in Jerusalem, but elsewhere. Um, are very, very often marginalized. That's, that's the, the, the sort of the keystone of um, the Roma in Europe and, and um, people who have been called by the English gypsies, um, although that term is also um, controversial. Some people uh, regard it as pejorative. Um, the people that I spoke to in Jerusalem don't. They, they self-identify as gypsy, which is why I'm okay. I feel okay using the term, even though I, there may be some people listening who the term will grate on their ears um but yes the the story of the dom is 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 really fascinating the 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 roots of of the dom in, in like almost all the gypsies not quite all but almost all um is in india and so there were these waves of migration um beginning sort of about uh, 1500 years ago roughly something like that um was domba in in india uh, began to move westwards. Uh, some reached Armenia and the and the areas around the Caucasus um, in the 11th century and stayed. Um, and they are the Lom who um, who uh, have their own identity, their own culture, and they speak their own language um, as well. And some of them continued on into Europe, into Eastern and Central Europe, and then into into Western and Northern Europe as well, uh, reaching there and also reaching my country, Britain, in sort of 15th, 16th century, like this. Rom or the Roma, um, and they speak Romani. And some, in their travels and movements, stayed in Turkey and and Iran and Central Asia and the and the Arab lands of the Middle East as well, um, either either moving independently or or being moved from place to place by rulers or armies. Um, and they are the Dom. Um, and they speak Domari, their own language as well. And talking to, there's this particular Amun Slim, um, who is, I don't think she would call herself one of the leaders of the Dom, um, but she has um, done perhaps more than anybody else um, to bring the Dom to outside attention. Um, she's an extraordinary person. She's very, very dynamic. Um, she's um, very sharp and very articulate about her history and her culture as well. Um, and I don't want to put words in her mouth. I, I talk to her and she can also speak very, very well for herself as well. But some of the stories she tells um, about the history of the Dom and the culture of the Dom that, that she knew growing up inside the old city in the, in the area, um, inside the Lion's Gate where her family house is, um, are really lovely. Um, 
and it's there's a richness um, um, that these stories of <clears throat> of marginalized people adds to of the social mix of the old city, which I think is extremely important. Um, as you said, another example um, is the, what they the people who self-identify as Afro-Palestinians and their their story as well. I give um, a full chapter also to them as well in my book. Um, partly because what I wanted to do with this book as well was to try and evoke place um, and place through story, place through uh, through uh, and the Afro-Palestinians live on one particular street within the old city, a very small street called Adlai Din Street, um, which leads up to Babel Majlis, which is one of the gates um, into Al-Aqsa on the western side. And this street is very short, it's only 90 meters or so end to end. Um, and it has, um, but despite that, it has it has this long, long history. I'm, I, I sense that we're gonna run out of time, so I won't be able to go into all of it. The links between this one short street and the history of enslavement in Jerusalem, enslaved peoples, um, is also really fascinating. That I was uh, that I was coming across some some has been written, not much, but some I found um, in English. I'm sure there's more um, in Arabic as well. Um, but the links with this street go back to the the 15th and 16th century. Two particular um, buildings, two hospices built around courtyards on this, just off this street, um, were described as being the home of people um, who were called Tokarna, um, who come from, or who were thought to come from, or who originated from, or whose family background was from in some way, uh, a place called Takrur, which um, was, was and still is linked with West Africa. Um, it's, it's actual place it in. Central Africa or Eastern Africa, or sometimes the word um, is used to describe a whole swathe of Africa from west to east. Um, and um, there, are, there are roots in, in Senegal and in, and in particular on the, on the border between Senegal and Mauritania, which is where Takrur originated in the 11th century. But then these, the, the history of their culture is, is another topic, which is too large for us just at the moment. Um, but these people um, would come on uh, pilgrimage on the Hajj to Mecca and then they um, and they are described, as I say, in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries as being resident on this particular street. Um, when the British arrived 100 years ago, um, by that stage, these areas had been converted into, uh, into a prison. Um, and the British then, um, after they took over, moved the prison. But then there, were, there, was, there was a sort of resettlement um, of people, uh, again, from, from the, the sort of the same areas, West Africa, fires coming from these four areas, Nigeria, Chad, um, um, I've now forgotten what the third one is, and Sudan. What was the third one? Maybe it was Senegal. Senegal, Nigeria, Chad, and Sudan. Sudan is, is, is problematic. Sudan, uh, because of its meaning in Arabic and because of the looseness with which it was ascribed to a particular area, I, I could mean, it could be a colonial term. There was a place, French Sudan, which equates to modern Mali, which is far, far distant from the Sudan, which is bordering Egypt. Um, where exactly everybody came from, I don't think it's, it's exactly certain. And I think all history in some senses will clash here with, um, with documented history. I don't know exactly. Um, what I wanted to try and do was to 
um, allow these people to 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 speak, to say, you know, to 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 to, to say their piece. Um, and the um, the the resonance that that brought up throughout um, the racism that the Dom um, experience as gypsies, and they are they do experience racism not just from Israel and Israelis, but also from Palestine and from Palestinians as well. They tend to be at the bottom of every heap, any heap you care to mention, economic or social, political. Um, the Dom are right at the bottom. And to, to compare and contrast the racism they experience with the racism that the Afro-Palestinian people have also experienced, which is now at least to some easing, um, partly because of political action, the Afro-Palestinian people have um, thrown themselves wholeheartedly into um, Palestinian politics um, and, and um, activities to support the Palestinian national movement. There are particular figures in the community um, who have um, stood out um, either as martyrs or as, um, as challenging the occupation and, and particular for, for active resistance, which um, the youth of that community are very active in, in resisting um, Israeli police actions in Al-Aqsa as well. Um, and then I started to think about the, 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 the difference in racism as Dom have, have withdrawn from politics and tried to occupy this space, this non-political space between Israelis and Palestinians and suffer from both of them because of, the, because of it. And the Afro-Palestinians have thrown themselves into, into Palestinian national politics. And to a certain extent, the racism has eased, at least from one side. And then looking at the migrations and why these migrations have not been as all the other migrations into um, into uh, 19th century and, and early 20th century Palestine and Jerusalem, um, there's a, I think there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, I'm hoping um, that the, the book will spark some of that as well from voices within these communities. There are many historians um, and other writers and scholars working within and allied with these communities, um, and they need more profile. And I hope, um, I hope this conversation as well will help to that, will help contribute to that. I have one last question. Our conversations, uh, you know, follow through your experience in, I would say, some chapters of your book. And I was wondering if there's anything that we didn't mention, but you feel passionate about and you want to talk and, you know, just use the next few minutes. <laughs> wow. Um, I feel passionate about a lot of things, as you may have heard in my voice. I don't know. There is, um, there's one thing which I would actually like to do, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, I've talked a lot. I want to give, I want to give a, a bit of time and a bit of, uh, a bit of profile to one particular voice um, who is, um, he's a man called Jack Persekian. You may be familiar to, to, to people, I'm sure, who are listening to this podcast. Um, he, um, he's, not, um, he's not a non-elite voice. He is, at least to a certain extent, within Palestinian society, an elite voice. He's, uh, he's an artist um, and a, a gallery, um, gallery owner and gallery um, director. Um, he has an international reputation um, in contemporary art in the Arab world. And he, I can also give a chapter to him, his, his focus, he has focused very much throughout his career on not just Jerusalem, but the old city of Jerusalem, um, uh, because of also his family background. His father um, was a bookbinder in the old city. Um, and the gallery that Jack runs is now in the same premises that his father had, is uh, an art foundation, um, which is doing a lot to, to promote, if you like, a voice in art 
um, as he says at one point, I'll, I want to read you a little bit that he that he that he that he spoke that he said to me. Um, this art foundation and the work that he does keeps this voice coming out from Jerusalem in art. Um, so if that's okay, I'm just going to read. Um, it's a short piece. It's a couple of minutes. Absolutely, please. A direct quote um, from the conversation that I had with him, um, and this is Jack Persekian. Jerusalem is becoming a mere symbol only, a religious symbol, a symbol of God and religion and nothing more, a token capital of Palestine. Holiness empties the city out because the holiness of the symbol becomes far more important than the living. There's a whole generation, what Jerusalem looks like, they see it in pictures, but it doesn't mean a thing. It's very disturbing. Jerusalem is becoming less and less of a place where you can see people living enjoying their life, creating a future for the younger generation. De-symbolizing Jerusalem comes through education. That's what art is trying to do, to make people think outside these prescribed narratives, to look at things from different ways, express ideas and thoughts without liberating yourself. Once more individuals are liberated from within, you can eventually start to evolve a society that is on its way to freedom. Otherwise, you can talk about freedom and liberation from here to Timbuktu, but if the people are shackled with all the baggage of religion and taboos and dominion by these bankrupt political parties, then it won't mean anything. I personally believe, and the people involved with the Art Foundation believe, that we need to keep looking for and to build more of a base. We have a track record and we have credibility. It can happen. Art can liberate. Yes, the people of Jerusalem are on their way to freedom and liberation, but there's a huge obstacle, and that is finding means and possibilities for those people who are gradually realizing their potential. They are hitting up against finding a job, affording the city, decent living conditions, being able to manage with all the complex maze of laws and regulations the Israeli live as a Palestinian in Jerusalem. People see no possibility for growth here, even if you're brilliant, a creator, if you've just invented something, or you're an industrialist and you want to open a factory, you can't do it in Jerusalem. You'll have to go into the West Bank or you will leave the country. It's a catch-22. People who I've seen manage to liberate themselves and gain that potential opt to leave Jerusalem and make their lives abroad. Those who stay here, a good number of them are stuck, hopeless, help desperate. One keeps trying and keeps working, but you're pushing against a huge wall. We've managed to keep a voice coming out from Jerusalem in art, in all the circles that art revolves in, locally and internationally. The voice insists that Jerusalem, with all its historical religious baggage, has a contemporary art identity and is engaging multiple issues through the lens of art and the work of artists. It's saying that Jerusalem is worthy of of visiting. This is a very powerful statement, and I remember reading it, as I said, uh, spoiler, I, I actually read the book, and mm. uh, that remind me the images that we can see today with uh, people fighting mm. uh, to keep their place in Jerusalem. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, literally today, in fact, <laughs> no, this morning, in fact. Exactly, literally today. And He's poor Sheikh Jarrah. Exactly, and it's hard to, to understand. I mean, I heard many people making the point where why don't they leave, right? 
it's it's a very naive question and a, it's an understandable one from people that don't know anything about uh, the conditions and you know the background of Jerusalem but it's also a very painful question in a sense to ask because it really doesn't take into account uh, the history and uh, the desire of the people and um, I think this was a very powerful statement to read uh, at the end of this interview thank mm. you for doing that you're very, very welcome. And, and, you know, I want to say thank you to Jack and also thank you to all the people, you know, in the book. I thank them in the book as well. But all the people who, who you know, were willing to speak to me and who allowed me to record them or to, or to make notes as, well as I was sitting there. Um, it was a real privilege to be able to write this book. And in a sense, um, um, yeah, there's something, that, something that somebody said to me. Um, one of my editors um, in one of the magazines that I write for, um, said to me at one point he's also um spent much of his life traveling to and from um the arab world and middle east um and writing about it and uh, in english to an english-speaking audience to try and um overturn some ideas he's from a previous generation from an older generation um and he said to me at one point he said it feels like my whole career um has been one long thank you um and in a sense i'm getting a bit older too um i'm also feeling the same as well the the the, the generosity um the hospitality the uh all these you know th these are cliches that people talk about arab culture but it's really genuinely true the 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 openness and the warmness of humanity and spirit that i've been shown over years and decades and you know um since i was a kid literally since i was a kid um is very humbling um and uh, this and my work in general so it feels like um one long thank you um, to all the people that I met and all the people that I haven't yet met and all the people that I hope at some point I will meet. This was Matthew Teller, writer, documentary maker, contributor to BBC4 Radio, but more importantly, author of the upcoming book, Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, published by Profile Books, that will be available on March 17. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.